0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
2: If my pops finds out I got in trouble in school today, I'm definitely going to be on punishment. Ah! Uh, There's a party tonight at Peter's house. Can I go? You're not going nowhere. Every little step you take will be around this bedroom tonight. Did you hear anything about a party tonight? Uh Uh-uh, at least not any good ones. Hello, Waffa. Do I feel like being bothered with Tawafa? Hello, Ladonna.
1: Booming. It's it's Booming. It's Booming.
2: Yo, baby. Looking real good.
1: Step off. Ooh,
2: scandalous. Kick it, Pop. What you got to say now, punk? How much more trouble can I get into? Hey, Elisa he Look, I'm in prison. Just do me a favor. Don't pick up the soap. Wait that front of me. I'm gonna kill him. Yo, y'all, look who fell into the gig. Hey, this ain't so pain. The two finest women in here. Now, how could a man choose? He better choose, right? Okay, so where on I wait, to the, the house party. What? house party
1: jay going to that damn party that's all to it i don't do it. damn what you say You're gonna make
2: me a social misfit
3: welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is mr patrick bromley
4: hello mike thanks for having me back
3: also back at the booth this week is mr jay scott smith gentlemen it's good to be here this week, we're discussing the 1990 film from director-writer Reginald Hudlin, House Party, starring Christopher Reed and Christopher Martin, a.k.a. Kid and Play, the former backup dancers of salt and Peppa, who became successes in their own rights. As the title might give away, this is a film about a house party <laughs> and the wild shenanigans surrounding it. It's also a lot more than just that. We'll be discussing the ins and outs of the film and the four other films that it inspired. So if you're afraid of spoilers, please Beware. So, Jay, when was the first time you saw House Party and what did you think?
5: The first time I saw House Party, House Party came out in 1990. I ended up seeing it on VHS at a friend's house the following year, 1991. I was was a little too young to have seen it in the theaters, but a friend of mine got a hold of it and we watched it for the first time. And it was, I think, the funny thing about Seeing that movie then, as opposed to kind of rewatching it now, and by the way, it's insane that 1990 is almost 30 years ago now. But hmm. to to see that movie, it was it was like in that line of the movies that were coming out earlier in the 90s, where you had the the black comedy movies from the Wayans brothers, and now you have House Party. What I thought the most about it was, I'm thinking, is this what it's going to be like when I'm in high school or when I'm in college? And it's a really cool, very. It's very 90s. I mean, I watched it again recently just to kind of get refreshed on it. It's startling <laughs> how, how much things have changed. When I say that I really liked the movie the first time I saw it, it was super cool. Now it just gives me all sorts of nostalgia seeing it because it just takes me right back to where I was when I was 11 and 12 years old and watching the older kids who were going to house parties and having all kinds of fun and doing different stuff like that.
4: How about you, Patrick? I honestly didn't see it until probably like the mid two thousands. I didn't catch it as a kid because I was just—I had a pop culture awareness of Kid in Play, but you know, uh, didn't really know their music because at that point my whole world was probably like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. So uh, (laughs) uh, I—it wasn't until like the mid two thousands I had read this book called Why We Make Movies, which was a book of interviews and profiles on black filmmakers. And there was a whole thing about Reginald Hudlin and the way that House Party was spoken about. I was like, oh, maybe I really need to check this movie out. So I went and blind bought the DVD and watched it. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's House Party. That's fun. But yeah, very 90s. Um, And I had a much different reaction to it this time. It was it was very interesting to watch it probably 10 or 15 years after that initial viewing. Um, and I, I had a whole new appreciation for it.
3: So apparently I'm the old man of the group because I saw this one, I saw one, two, and three and class act all theatrically. And when I saw them, I was probably, I think I was 18 when house party one came out and absolutely loved it. I was a little familiar with Robin Harris. I was pretty familiar with kid and play though i don't think i owned any of their albums i remember liking a lot of salt and peppa but again i didn't have their albums i was more into like run dmc so of course i saw tougher than leather i was more into public enemy a little bit harder stuff than what kid and play were doing but i always liked the look and i loved kids funky fresh high top fade that he had going on and i I love all the jokes about the hair in this movie. And again, going back to Robin Harris, I love Robin Harris. He is hilarious, and I absolutely love him in this movie. And it's always so sad for me to revisit this, and especially to revisit the second one, where there's so much pining for Robin Harris. And he just makes such a big impact on this film that I just can't overstate how great he is in this role even though he had, it doesn't have a lot to do but he kind of makes his role his own with this he was a bridge
5: he was definitely a bridge and i just think when i'm rewatching is robin harris is he was always one of those great what ifs because he was one of those really in a, a kind of like an ahead of his time his his timing of everything about him was so great especially in this movie it kind of summed up who he was even down to the little details because there's a point in the, in the first movie where he's walking up the street looking for, looking for his son, looking for kid, and the police pull him over. And it's like he's grousing about having to find him. And even just a little detail of he mentions, I never should have married that white woman, <laughs> which instantly explains why his son, kid, is that much of a different of a complexion from him. And I just found that just so right. humorous is that he, he took a minute to note that detail that little detail in there, just little things like that. Plus he's just he was just so ridiculously funny. Just incredibly just really quick witted. Some of his comedy would not go over at all very well today, but but a lot of things in that movie are super problematic in 2019. But it was watching it then and kind of being able to go back to that. It was House Party was one of those one of one of those portraits, if you wanted to know what hip hop culture was in 1989, 1990, watch House Party, because that's what that's what it was. It's like you mentioned, I, I think of for me, House Party was also the dances because I was in fifth and sixth grade and a lot of the kids are doing the kid and play dance and all the different routines. When we're just we're just to that age, we're starting to kind of understand what rap was around is i didn't really get super into rap till about 92 93 when i was getting into high school but it was a it's such a coming of age point where we see the kid and play dance and all that other cool stuff it was just amazing and and there and the number of people who have become future stars in that movie as well really jumped out to me too
3: the thing where play is vacuuming his house. And he's doing the dance while he's vacuuming the house. And when he tries to do that, that it was really the signature move of Kid and Play where they would hold one leg, one, one uh, uh, ankle with one hand and then jump through that angle. I mean, I had a couple friends in high school that could do that move, and it just completely floored me every time <laughs> I would watch them do that. And then I love that he screws up that move and ends up tripping over the, the vacuum cleaner, which is great. Because
5: we've all done that at some point. We've all done that. If, if, you were, if you were a young, especially a young black kid in the early 1990s, everybody tried to do the kid-and-play thing at parties with friends. You, I, I did that. For me, it was with a broomstick. Where I had a broomstick up against the wall, and I would try to keep doing the same step and make sure I was able to hang in there and still do it because t- we were still doing the kid-and-play thing and when we got to high school in the mid-'90s because people would just have fun because they would play, ain't going to hurt nobody, or rolling with kid-and-play, and you would start doing the dance. And it would be the coolest thing ever when you get two guys to be able to pull it off, which I pulled it off successfully in ninth grade at a ninth grade party in 1994. I was able to pull that <laughs> I was able to pull that move off. It's like now every time I, it's like now, the more I think about it, it's like it's taking me back to when I was a teenager. It's really, really cool. But that that was a cultural experience for us. And I don't think we realized it initially how much of a cultural experience it was for us.
3: So I read the screenplay for this, and the father character, though, going back to Robin Harris, was not Robin Harris in the screenplay. It was just a father character, and then all of the stuff that Harris brings to it and injecting in his own stand-up comedy. The, the I mean, they basically just turn him loose at the house party once he arrives. And the thing of the uh, the kid with the jerry curls that's right out of his routine and stuff and it's just like wow this is fantastic just to get those kind of you know it's it, you play to your strengths you know here we have this stand up comic who's got this great timing let's just let him riff a little bit and we'll kind of work it into the screenplay
5: he's really great at roasting dudes it was i mean you could see it because you, you could see some of the people in the background couldn't couldn't hold it they were starting to, they were starting to laugh and, and starting to kind of and starting to kind of, it it was just like that was it. Was perfect. I kept thinking to myself, "What was that like? If they ever had any outtakes, what did the outtakes look like?" how many people couldn't hold it when he just starts going after the guy for the Jerry Curl and making fun of Bilal and, and it's the no, the Robin Harris. It, it's funny now to see it because Martin Lawrence was a young comic at this point, kind of a young up and comer, and Robin Harris is the seasoned vet out there, just roasting guys and having a having a blast with it all. That was what really lunged out at me, too, was just it it was it looked like it was it was a blast to shoot that. And I can only imagine now, nowadays, with all the outtakes and everything else, how great it would have been to have really been there to see how they handled him and how many other ad libs that he made when he was going after different people.
4: My understanding, too, and I don't know how much of this is just a rumor and how much of this is actually true, that the Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince version sort of came about because they owed New Line because they were sued for sampling part of the Nightmare on Elm Street music for Nightmare on My Street, and that that was sort of why they were going to do this movie was because New Line sort of held this over their heads. But that uh, Reginald Hudlin was not interested in forcing these two young men to make the movie with him, so he decided (laughs) to go with Kid and Play instead.
3: And I will say, Kid and Play, they have a lot of charisma. And watching these two guys through the three house party movies in class act they hold it together. they really can do a great job, and I like the way that they set these two characters up as being you know kind of the the dorky good guy I mean they really play it up in class act, but as far as like the dorky good guy and the kind of conniving scheming, not necessarily bad guy, I mean play is not bad, but he's not really a good friend, and a lot of times he ends up being kid's nemesis whether he intends to or not but i have to say they have the charisma they have the chops it doesn't feel like oh we're just going to take these two dancer rapper guys uh, and throw them in here and then good luck with that they can hold their own with every single actor in this film
5: they were nuanced characters and there were the little elements of it. You see it when he goes off on on play, when he talked when he talked about not um not having the condom ready, and they were razzing him about that. And he called, and he gets he gets pissed off. He says you're but, but you're a dog though, and talks about the way he treats women and and how very clearly they disagreed about that whole thing, or how they had the rap battle in the in the house party, and they were at each other. And it was interesting kind of seeing that dynamic that they were friends, but they weren't – they had little enemy moments at the same time. Or they had disagreements where it showed there were actual layers and levels to to their partnership.
3: And also the whole idea of of play – really being kind of addicted to Belial as well and this whole idea of him I mean my god I just cringe every time they have that scene where he's throwing Belial's DJ gear into his car and just scratching the sides oh, of the hurts. towers and stuff oh man does that ever
1: hurt that, that, that It just, hurts
3: in uh, the way that he's just throwing those records in and stuff, and yeah, I mean, really, we kind of start the beginning of the second act of this film with Belial sitting there on the, the the porch and just like, nope, I'm not going with you. There's no way, you know, you'd really treat me bad. You know, I shouldn't be playing at a friend's house for free. You know, just that's I, I'm getting no respect from that. And eventually, you know, the, I mean, the the lure of young nubile flesh is you know the downfall for almost everyone in this movie and eventually gets him in there. And then even when they're driving to the house party, which seems like it must be quite a few blocks away, they see Kid running away from full force and and he's like, was that was that Kid? Oh yeah, whatever. I don't have room in my car anyway. So it's just like, man, what a dick move <laughs> this guy's doing. <laughs> and I have to say I really like that we have these two very well-drawn female characters in here between Shireen and Sydney and that they are... I would say almost as important to the narrative as kid and play. And there's so much time spent with them. I don't think they passed the Bechdel test by any means because they're always talking about kid and or play, but that they can have conversations and that we see them away from kid and play. They actually exist in this universe without needing to be around male characters.
5: They could have carried their own film, almost like a spinoff of some sort, because there was a story there with them. And it was there was a good story arc with them where there's the level of insecurity that Sydney has because she feels like she's not as outgoing and she has a bit more of a conscience than Sherelle has, where Sherelle just basically says she's living for the moment, essentially. and She doesn't care if she's messing around two guys who are obviously friends, whereas Tisha Campbell has more of the the nuance of saying, no, this isn't right. This isn't right. But at the same time, when she gets with kid and it's like it's there's there's something there. That it's like when, I, when you first see House Party, you just say, oh, this is a cool, fun little movie. But, yeah, there are certain elements to it that really keep it together very, very well. And that's one of them is the relationship between those two friends where it's similar to that a kid in play. It's almost like they're kind of the, the, the female equivalent of them.
3: And that's one of the reasons why in 2019 I'm still interested in talking about this movie is that it wasn't just this throwaway piece of pop culture where no one mattered at all to the story and we can just forget about it five minutes later. Where some of these jokes from the first movie and the third movie can stick with me for all these years and I can still quote them, I can still talk about them, still think about them, and they still have relevancy in this age.
4: Well, and it makes it such a fun uh, kind of a hangout movie, too. Because that's, you know, that's for me, that's what makes a good hangout movie is I can drop in on any of the characters at any point during the movie and I'm engaged and I'm interested. And it's not like, oh, my gosh, please get back to kid and play already. It would have been so easy to just make this movie the the kid and play vehicle, you know, the, uh, the from Justin to Kelly of its day. And instead <laughs> they like or, you know, cool as ice or whatever garbage movie you want to talk about. But like, no, Reginald Hudlin made. A real movie, a good movie that just happens to star you know kid and play, who honestly, as i 'm watching it, Mike you said earlier, how charismatic they are, yeah, at no point do I watch it feeling like oh, these guys are are hip hop artists, these guys are musicians who are trying to act, they feel completely natural. I never remember that like, oh, acting was not their first uh strength, you know um it 's just a good movie that just happens to star these two musicians, but then they're surrounded by these interesting characters or really funny characters. You know, we don't, we drop in on Robin Harris and we're laughing. We go back to Tisha Campbell and we're sort of invested in her story. We go back to Martin Lawrence and I don't know, you know, no matter who we drop in on, it's, it's cool.
3: Well, I will admit something that I should probably be ashamed of, but I'm not for whatever reason. I wasn't aware of full force as being A group at this time, it took me a lot of years before I realized who our three main villains are in this movie, uh, that they are members of full force. And I think it was what, three brothers and three cousins or something? It was a pretty big group. Yeah. That's the song that they dance to when they're having their dance off is uh, ain't my type of hype which is a full force song. I had no idea because I bought the 3 that these 3 guys were actors. I never would have thought that they were primarily, you know, rappers producers first and actors second because I love the chemistry that they have and especially, you know, Pee Wee with his whole
1: If I was you, I'd kick his fucking
3: ass. They're super clownish, but I don't think they pass from clownish in, into more of like a minstrel territory. They're not like overly drawn characters, you know, like, like just walking stereotypes like Stab. I mean, the guy's name is Stab <laughs> is a muscle head and he's just a font of rage. But I don't think that I think there's more to him than just that.
5: It was it was interesting because they they were they were your t- I would and I use this term very very carefully they were your typical early 90s black hip-hop film characters they they fit them they almost like they set the bar for the villain in a lot of these movies where they almost like the Wee being, being very chris rockish in, in yes. the way he speaks and 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 the full force thing when i saw them this is i mean here's the fun part when i first saw the movie i didn't think of them as full force either i'd heard of them and i'd heard their music but it didn't register with me until i watched it again when i was in college it's like Oh shit! That's right. <laughs> that's full force. So the group trying to get into the party, their music is already playing in the party. And these are guys who have had because full force outside of just being, they were just a uh, they were more than just an R and B group at the time. They did hip hop. They produced music across all different genres of music. There not many got not many groups can say that they produced music for U T F O, Patti Labelle, and In in their career. They did so much. But in a way, their characters in the movie kind of fit who they are. You know them, but you don't know who they are until you look back at it. And I love the element that they added because even in the midst of them being these, these heels, these bad guys where they're constantly just all over, all over the movie trying to get kid, it's almost like the Wile E. Coyote mm-hmm. routine of trying to chase down the Roadrunner. There was still a little bit of extra to them. There, wa- there was that moment where they're saying, dude, you're going too far. Or we, we can we, we, I'm not here for burning down somebody's house or
3: when he, that is still crazy when they still go to burn down the guy's house. I'm like, oh, my God, God.
5: <laughs> <laughs> he, he says, wait, we're not trying to I'm not trying to do all that or or he has the, the half moment when they're in jail and kid tries to talk him into just saying, hey, can we just squash this and figure our way out of this? And he thinks for a second before basically telling him to F off. There was a lot of develop a lot of character development in a movie like this. That when you see it at 11 and 12 years old, you don't get it, but then you watch it again in your 20s, it's like, wow, this is cool. And I see it almost wow, it's still crazy almost 30 years later. And there's so much there that this was a really great piece. This was actually a really great piece. Plus, it was just funny. It's amazing how you're able to make that work. The best can make things like that work.
3: I like the callbacks in this movie, too. I mean robin harris obviously being informed by a lot of dolomite's work and then him talking about like oh i rented dolomite and that you hear dolomite on the tv when kids mm-hmm. trying to <laughs> sneak out and stuff i mean i love that and when robin harris starts doing the dolomite the signifying the monkey rap and stuff i mean that is just fantastic and then the use of uh uh george clinton in here as well which again he wasn't in the screenplay they just had like old DJ and the whole thing of him, it was more Kid was scratching the records and all this, but I like that they use George Clinton for that and that you hear Parliament Funkadelic in the background during that scene and everything. That's really nice. And again, it's kind of a nice throwback to like, yeah, we we see our elders and we're moving on from that kind of stuff. We're taking what they're doing and building on that, which is a nice way of, of approaching this stuff. And it didn't feel like stunt casting or anything where it's just like, you know, if you knew who George Clinton was, cool. And otherwise, I like that he's miserable there with <laughs> the older people. And that one woman, when kid says raise your hand in the air and wave them if you just don't care. I love that one woman who has that crazy look on her face when she brings up her hands and is just moving them like almost like a robot or something. Still <laughs> hilarious to me.
5: It was interesting when you see, when, when I think back to hip hop in the early nineties, late eighties, there were, it, it, there was a level of respect to the pioneers. because a lot of hip hop is drawn from funk music and George Clinton had a huge influence on a lot of rappers, especially as you go know, later in the decade with like Ice Cube, who Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg and, and Dr. Dre, and that a lot of that was influenced by guys like George Clinton. So that's actually a great nod to have him in a movie like this because there was a way of them kind of bridging the generations and kind of saying, hey, there is respect shown and respect due here. And it was also a really funny scene. As soon as I see him pop up, and I just broke out laughing. It's like, oh my God, that's George Clinton again. <laughs> it's just the first thing i think of is that they've got him in there and a much more toned down george clinton from what we see today <laughs> where where it takes you a second to figure it out but then you realize like wait that is george clinton just without the crazy colored dreads and and the big fur coats and everything but he was he was too cool for the party back in 1990 and <laughs> he's still too cool for the party now even all this time later
3: well, I will admit I had kind of a blind spot when I came to a lot of Parliament Funkadelic stuff. And then I was a big fan of De La Soul. And when I heard the song that basically was me, myself, and I, I was like, oh shit, this is almost exactly that song, just with like an added drum beat to it. I mean, it's just amazing how much of. Parliament Funkadelic stuff was bitten by those early uh, rappers and by the, all the, the sampling that was going on. It was just fantastic.
5: It's even, and even more interesting if you look at the – because I'm big on album, album covers. If you look at the album covers for some of uh, Parliament Funkadelic stuff, they're dis- and then you look at some of De La Soul's like Three Feet High and Rising, you look at some of the designs, their album covers look almost exactly like Parliament Funkadelic's too. They steal little elements. I won't even say steal. They borrow elements from that as just little nods along the way. And it was it was interesting because at that time, hip-hop culture was still kind of really burgeoning. I mean, rap had been around for about 15 years to get to 1990, but it wasn't until ninety, ninety one, ninety two, ninety three 92, 93, where hip-hop becomes more of a phenomenon in the country, but there were still always the little nods back to the funk and the 80s R&B that a lot of this stuff got pulled from. And Parliament Funkadelic was just... For one, it was just a great they're, – they're always going to be a great – they're timeless. They're a timeless group. But when you see that, you realize how much of an impact they had on that generation of rap because it. there were so many nods to them that it was it was almost kind of comical when, the way that they were
3: doing it. I mentioned that Jerry Curl character earlier who – doesn't show up at all other than that one moment I was like looking for him in the background because he ends up being one of the ex-cons from ex-con catering and I'd love that he just is basically there just for one joke (laughs) (laughs) and even with like uh, you know you you talked about Martin Lawrence and Martin Lawrence his one defining character trait is his bad breath but again it's not just one joke was very interesting in the way that the party is The whole second act of the film. Like, there's a little bit of it, I think, in the third act, but really the second act of this movie is the house party proper. And it's a. nice way to frame this thing we've got the beginning where it's like can i go to the party all the conflict about that i like that we don't have to worry about the parents coming home even though there is some talk about you know the toilet being broken and you know play kicking out everybody from the party towards the end there but then that third act where we have kid going to jail his rather uncomfortable rap about let, let's say it's uncomfortable about uh yeah. getting uh <laughs> raped in prison uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one doesn't age too that, well that didn't uh,
5: age well at all that didn't age well after 10 years <laughs> after, after 30.
3: wow yeah that was rough uh, <laughs> but yeah him getting with with sydney and the whole thing with the condom and the the discussion about why you would want to get with Sydney versus why you want to get with Shireen and the whole idea of the Shireen living in the projects and having privacy, having moments to yourself that plays, I guess he's okay with that because he seems to be more interested. I mean, I always talk about how at the end of too many movies you have to have the coupling and in this there's the idea of who's going to go with who is it going to be sydney and kid is it going to be Shireen and play that's how it ends up being but there is some tension as far as how that's going to be i mean it seems natural at the end of the day that you know the more street smart i guess is how you would call play the more the uh the the more brazen one is going to go with Charain because Charain seems to have that bigger personality. She seems like she would need somebody like Play to be with, and maybe they could kind of keep it, each other in check as far as that go. And Sydney's the nice girl who's and and this is interesting that her parents are some of the people that are at this more upscale party earlier in the film, the one that George Clinton is um, DJing at, and I think they said. Isn't her father a doctor or something?
5: I think so, yeah. It
3: seems like there would be more of an economic difference between Kid with his dad who's looking for overtime work versus who's who seems very affluent. But they seem to get along pretty well. I really like,
4: too, um, that whole sequence— where uh where Kid and Tisha Campbell are sort of getting to know one another, and then it leads into the condom stuff, and you know you can get away with some of the the movie is like a little harder edged than I remember because I think in my brain this is like oh, it's this p g thirteen movie, you know um. And, and then I watched it, I'm like, oh, God, no, this is, this is pretty R-rated. <laughs> this is very R-rated. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here. That's But I really like their dynamic, and I think you can get away with so much of the raunchier stuff because I think there's something that's very, very sweet at the core of their relationship. And that exchange that they have... Uh, where he says, you know, if I have to pick, you're the one I want to be friends with. And she's kind of disappointed for a second. And then he says, I think if you're going to you know, be with someone, you should be friends and lovers. And I just think that that line allows them to get away with so much more because it's not just some movie about these sexed up teenagers, that they have actual thoughts and feelings and that they actually genuinely – Uh, are capable of caring about one another and that to me makes such a difference when it comes to the coupling up stuff that it's not just this perfunctory like well by the end of the movie they have to be paired up that it takes the time to say oh these young people have actually formed a connection and actually like one another that goes such a long way with me
5: it's almost like i had to remind myself that they were supposed to be they were supposed to be high school students it's like I had to keep saying this, like this. They almost seemed like they would be college students because these are very mature. They were very mature teenagers, to put it mildly. But at the yeah. same time, with the sneaking in and out of the houses, it's like, yeah, I guess they're supposed to be in high school. But the, again, very, very nuanced. There was actual depth to some of them. And yeah, you had the same kind of same reaction I did where I, I thought I was remembered it as being a little less raunchy version. But no, this this thing came at you pretty quick as soon as i'm gonna kick his fucking ass like oh yeah this is (laughs) uh this was not pg-13 at all but if you have robin harris it makes sense but this was not pg-13 in the least but it was a it was kind of a shock to the system but seeing some of the characters with their different edges there's that's what made it a a much a surprisingly better movie than it may have seemed at the time is because there was a lot of depth to it it wasn't just comedy and pratfalls for the sake of pratfalls there'd be nothing against the wayans movies i love those but it wasn't like some of the wayans movies that are very slapsticky. this one actually had had some depth to it
3: and i like that even though full force yeah they're pretty bad dudes in this and especially like when stab crosses the line and wants to burn down place house it's a whole (laughs) other level but the real The real bad guys in this movie end up being the cops, which is a nice thing, too. The way that they harass Robin Harris and the harass Kid and the way that they make them say, I want to be somebody to them. And I like how the people at the party are kind of offended by that. I was just like, or I am somebody. That's a nice moment when the, the people at the party are just like, come on. You're really crossing the line here with this stuff, and that they get their comeuppance at the end by having the roof that we saw blown off the house, which I thought was in kids' uh, dream, but this dream roof uh, come <laughs> down and smash them at the end is really kind of a nice fuck you to the police. It,
5: it, it was one of those things where you could see it was building toward them getting their comeuppance along the way, where they're intentionally just screwing with anybody who happens to be walking up the street. And I, I can still remember uh, Robin Harris saying that I was I was born in a town <laughs> called out of out of cop's ass. <laughs> and I feel like making a return. <laughs> I, I'm watching that and I'm just thinking like, yeah. It, and the sad thing is, it's very timely. <laughs> unfortunately, it's kind of timely. Even now, that was one of the things that unfortunately did kind of age a little well, was seeing that in the movie and seeing that, uh, seeing the police being the. The baddest of the bad guys along the way where even as yeah, the the, the scene at the party was very telling where these older black people were there. It's almost like you have that moment where it gets very real very quickly. It wasn't heavy handed, but it was just one of those things. You look at that and almost like you put a push pin in it for later on down the line that one of them is going to get theirs because it was it was it did go it did go over the line. But that was also what some black youth were dealing with at the time from the police. Is being humiliated like that, being picked on like that. So that was that was a nice touch to add to the movie. And yeah, having them get killed, Wizard of Oz style, at the end of it is pretty is pretty damn funny too.
3: Well, I remember a few years ago there was a lot of stuff in the news about you know police being unfair to to black youths, and there was a lot of violence, some killings, those kind of things. But I don't hear about that at all in the media these days. So I imagine that's all fine now. <laughs> it's all, correct? Yeah,
5: it's all, it's all cleared up. <laughs> was, okay, that, that wow. It, that ended at least 15 years ago. We have to worry about that
3: now. <laughs> wow. All right. That's good. That's good. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the writer-director of House Party, Reginald Hudlin, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
2: Hey, y'all. I got a great new album in the mail today. <laughs>
1: Communications and Hey Love Productions proud to present Hey Love, the classic sounds of sexy soul. The moments the stylistics, girl, the incomparable love Delphonics, love and much, much more. You get 40 of the greatest soul ballads ever recorded. You stay. Not sold in any store. This exclusive TV offer is available only here, only now. Write this toll-free number down and call now to order this timeless soul treasure taken from original masters. The Shylights. Barbara Mason the immortal Linda Jones, and 20 more unforgettable soul classics. Remember, this limited offer is not available in any store. Operators are standing by. Order now before the sounds of sexy soul get away. This is a fantastic album, man. Let me borrow it. No, my brother. You've got to buy your own. To order your copy of this classic collection, have your credit card ready and call 1 800 327 8300. That's 1 800 327 8300. Or rush nineteen ninety dollars plus $4 shipping and handling to K Love, CS Box 3160, Department X, Melville, New York. Operators are standing by. Call 1 800 327 8300. Satisfaction guarantee. Order now.
3: That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths. Teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about core production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at SuperTrueStories.com.
6: Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201.
0: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good. Party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday.
3: What got you interested in becoming part of the entertainment business?
0: It was a uh, perfect timing. On one hand, you had this explosion of the black exportation era right, where you had Shaft, Superfly, all these movies. And at the same time, my brother, Warrington, went to Yale, which couldn't be more different from our hometown, county, St. Louis, and discovered independent cinema and decided he wanted to be what was then called an underground filmmaker. So I saw these two very different paths to be able to make your own movies.
3: Were you a big fan of black exploitation growing up, or did you tend to enjoy the underground cinema more?
0: I loved it all. I loved seeing empowered black heroes putting foot to ass. And at the same time, uh, I was loving move, movies like Kurosawa and Ozu and you, know, and, you know, learning about Frederick Wiseman and, you know, all this other stuff. So to me, it wasn't an either or. It was all the above.
3: How did you decide to pursue that? Did you go to your brother and say, this is what I want to do, now help me do it? Or did you kind of forge your own
0: way? I went to Harvard and I joined their film program. And by senior year, I had to make my own thesis film. So I worked that summer, saved up some money, and got some money from my brother and wrote a script, which became a 20-minute short film called House Party.
3: Now, I haven't seen the short version of House Party, and I'm curious, what is it like? What what happens in it?
0: It's kind of the same movie, but 20 minutes long. It starts with a kid being told he can't go to a party. He goes to a party, he meets a girl, Then, when he comes home, tries to sneak back in the house his father catches him. So the, the fundamental beats, the uh, structure of the feature are, are all there uh, seated in the short film.
3: Well, how do you go from the thesis film to actually making the feature version of it?
0: Well, that wasn't originally the plan. Uh, House Party was, I mean, uh, it was sort of the also the beginning of hip-hop. And I loved hip-hop music. I loved the excitement of it as this kind of new folk music that was being made as this great response to the disco movement, which was uh, felt very oppressive and very corporate but my goal was to make my version of Battle of, of out some big political tract, And, you know, it kind of made, you know, but when you say, OK, well, if you're going to make a movie independently, with very little money, you say, OK, well, what's a movie we can make really cheaply? So I figured in the worst possible case, I knew I could make House Party out of my pocket because it was just a, a simple movie, you know, I didn't need big stars. I could just do it with some kids. Uh, in a few locations, so it seemed like a very doable film.
3: So after you graduate with that in hand, what happens next? Like, how do you go from that into making music videos? And and I have to ask about the uh, Hey Love commercial.
0: <laughs> uh, the Hey Love commercial was a job that I got offered to my brother. Some guys he knew I couldn't didn't know exactly how, and there just weren't that many black people who were producing and directing anything. So uh, they hired him to do the commercial, and I was there uh, as a young kid helping out. I can't remember if the line, no, my brother, you got to get your own. That may have been my idea, may not. I can't really remember, honestly. So that became sort of a legendary commercial. Then uh, when a couple of my short films were shown at the Newark Film Festival, which I think is the oldest uh, long-running Black Film Festival. I met Andre Harrell. Uh, Andre Harrell was a protege of Russell Simmons, and he was starting his own label at Universal called Uptown. Through him, uh, he saw the short film, and said you're talented. We're going to make movies together. And I was skeptical about whether the movie thing was going to happen, but I figured I could get some music video jobs. And in fact, my brother and I did the first two music videos for Uptown Records.
3: Now, I remember on Uptown, what, Heavy D? Was he on that?
0: Yeah, we did uh, Heavy D and the Boys, in the Pacific Stuff, and then there was sort of a, uh, a company record called Uptown's Kicking It that uh, featured uh, verses from all the artists on the label. So um, those were f- I mean, we did two videos for 50000 bucks total, which seemed like a lot of money back then. <laughs> and um, And, you know, that was our kind of break into, you know, show business. Yeah, I've talked to
3: actually quite a few directors who got their start in music video, but there's also a ton of directors who just stayed in music videos and just stayed there until that market ran dry. How did you make that transition from music video into feature film?
0: It's really about writing. You know, uh, I was writing scripts. It's not like they, I mean whether it's then or now, there's not some huge amount of great screenplays sitting around about black culture. So if those are the kind of things you want to make movies about, you've got to generate it yourself.
3: So what were some of those screenplays that you're working on? I mean, were those, I imagine a few of them eventually you got to make, but what were some of the other ones that you're working on?
1: Well,
0: you know, a house party, obviously, there's a few other things that never got made, but, Uh, The big break, actually, even before House Party was um, from George Jackson, who was a black guy who graduated from Harvard a few years ahead of me. Uh, He knew about my short film, and he recommended me for my first Hollywood job, which was to uh, develop a movie for Janet Jackson and The Time. Janet Jackson was hot, coming off the Control album. Uh, the time had just done purple rain, so uh, and you know the and Jimmy and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, the uh, producers, uh, had to deal with a and Records, so it all kind of came together uh, with that opportunity.
3: I, you just blew my mind. I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, I love more Day and more Day in a feature film. I mean, he was fantastic in. A purple Rain, I can't imagine a more of a more stay vehicle. That would be fantastic.
0: I had never written a screenplay before, so I was really blessed to get paid to learn the job. I didn't know three-act structure. I don't think all the term papers I had ever written added up to 120 pages, so I just wrote and wrote and wrote and ended up turning it a 150-page script, which is way too long. And the executive there, uh, Dale Pollock. Who went on to write uh, Skywalking, kind of the, one of the definitive books about George Lucas, um, he really was very patient with me and helped guide me to uh, beating the script into some kind
2: of shape. Uh,
0: the movie ended up not happening, but uh, it, it, yeah, I earned enough money to make a large purchase. So I could buy a car or a computer. And It's figure a car depreciates, but if I bought a computer, I could write more scripts and I'd make more money. So I bought the computer.
3: So I imagine that the version of House Party that you wrote, even you know the the feature version, probably changed a ton Mm -hmm. based upon the casting. And I'm curious, one, when it got greenlit, and two, when Kid and Play were introduced to the mix.
0: I had written the script. Uh, There was a junior executive at new line named Helena Exegorian, who introduced it to her boss. Uh, they loved the, the the scripts. They liked the short film. So they said, hey, let's develop this. So uh, they gave me a bunch of notes. I didn't agree with the notes, but they made me think about how to improve the script. So I worked on the script. Um, and again, I had been planning on doing it using some of the stars from Uptown Records. Groove Be Chill which is one of the acts. They, these guys were funny. They were smart. They were just great guys. So I planned on using them and they said, no, 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 we need bigger stalls than that. So, uh, I was on Video Music Box, which was sort of the one of the few, few venues where you could see black music videos on television would play kid and play in videos. And I thought they were great. Uh, they were very visual. They had great dance moves. And I knew this girl who worked with their management company. They said they're they're responsible. So I pitched Kid and Play. I may have overstated how many gold, platinum records they had, uh, but um, New had bought into them. We made the movie with them. Now there's a funny little anecdote there. There was a brief moment where New said, "Well, you know,
6: we sued
0: this other rap group." for infringement on Nightmare on Elm Street. So, and and in the settlement deal, they're obligated to do a movie for us. So would you do a movie with Jazzy Jeff and the Press Chris? Um, And I said, sure, they're awesome. I just think that I want them to want to make the movie. To do a performance based on losing a lawsuit might be a little lackluster. So I... Went to Russell Simmons, and I told about the movie. Russell was very dismissive. Oh no, they've got some big movie about summer camp. They're doing with with uh, John Peters, and they don't have time for a little movie. So I got blown off. Um, so uh, we did the movie with Kid and Play. So how does the
3: project change when Kid and Play come to town?
0: Not that much, really. Uh, th- their personalities really fit with the script that was written. Uh, The main thing was making sure that you build in musical and dance performances. And I love musicals, so doing a quasi musical really appealed to
3: me. One of the standout scenes for me is the dance off in the movie. That is such a fantastic scene to see those guys and then see the actresses also just really throw down.
0: Yeah. Well, Tisa and AJ were dancers and choreographers, so. It was a natural pairing to have those two uh, the two pairs face off with each other. And I really have to say, to this day, shooting that scene was one of the happiest days of my life. It was so much fun, so much joy. Uh, it, it was really
3: intoxicating. Now, I imagine that the house itself, that had to be a set.
0: Yeah, it was a set. The exterior was a real house in South Central, one of those beautiful craftsman homes, but the interior was a set at Culver Studios, which is the lot where they shot Go With The Wind.
3: I can't even imagine how many days people had to be there dancing, quote-unquote, because I imagine you shot a lot of it without any music whatsoever.
0: Well, what we would have is we'd start with some music, and then we would click the music off and have the click track. So they caught the groove and then they would have to maintain the beat while we stopped the dialogue for the scene.
3: I imagine that the folks that you had worked with before in your student film, maybe actors in your videos, not necessarily professional actors, but here you are dealing with more of a professional crew. What was that like for you making that transition?
0: Well, the crew was definitely professional and that was a real step up, you know, I uh, you know. Being so young and making a movie, I felt that I had to command respect by being prepared. You know, having answers to questions. I remember the first day uh, there was a scene inside uh, Shireen's house, right in the projects, and her big brother was uh, this wonderful actor uh, that we saw on the beach the week before. We we're like, Hey, you're in L. A. Yeah, I'm in L. A. Hey, why don't you in our movie? So he was there. He was shirtless and he was be on the phone. But he was the background element while the conversation was going to happen in the front. So we were like, well, how do we do? So I said, well, just turn around so we don't see your mouth. And I remember the guys in the crew going, hmm. And it was like I passed a test I didn't know I was taking. The crew was like, oh, he actually can solve problems. That means this thing won't be a disaster. So it was a a, a wonderful moment.
3: I don't want you to put words in your brother's mouth, but how was it? For him working on this as well, because this is definitely a a far cry from kind of the underground film scene that I think that he, uh, you were saying that he enjoyed.
0: Yeah, but, you know, we, you know, we always knew the importance of making subversive cinema. And, you know, it's not about making some preachy tracks that's only speaking to the converted. The movie was a celebration of. You know, again, this is before hip-hop kind of became the corporate behemoth that it is right now. It was still this really kind of resistance youth movement. And the secret message of the movie, which is safe sex, that was very subtly done. So the kids didn't feel like it was an after-shoot special, but the message was there and was received. In fact, a year later, we got this award from this health clinic in New Jersey for encouraging kids to use safe sex. So I remember being there at the award ceremony and talking to the doctor who ran the clinic. And I said, this is really wonderful, but come on. I don't think the movie really made that much of a difference. And he says, you're completely wrong, Reggie. Kids come into the clinic and they reference your movie when they talk about, you know, practicing safe sex. And it blew my mind because, You know, you do these things with good intentions, but it doesn't mean it's going to work. So the fact that it actually did work was uh, pretty amazing.
3: So what was it like working with Kid and Play? Like I said, they weren't necessarily professional actors, but they do
0: a fantastic job. Yeah, I mean, they were just great. I mean, they had to audition for me and then audition for the head of the studio. And I've always felt that rappers are more predisposed to have an easier transition into acting. Because in hip-hop, you create a persona, you tell a story. Most of them, at least back then, wrote their own rhymes. So they were kind of auteurs in their own medium. So that transition is a little easier. And kit and play were absolute natural. They were wonderful actors and a joy to work with. As was Full Force, who played the bullies, and you know we're still all very close to this day. I mean, they're just—they're just—it was just a, a perfect collection of enormously talented people.
3: This is one of Martin Lawrence's first roles,
0: correct? Yeah, he had a tiny, tiny little part and do the right thing. I think that may be his first movie, but I'm pretty sure this was his second.
3: Obviously, he comes from more of a a stand-up background. I'm curious, was he allowed to ad-lib a little bit on this, or did he follow the script pretty much?
0: I allowed everybody to ad-lib. I mean, my thing was, you know, we had a lot of rehearsals. We incorporated their ideas in the rehearsals. And, you know, know, my rule is, pitch anything you want, I'll hear you out, and if I say no, it means no. And that felt very good and fair to everybody, because, you know, you can't have anarchy, but... You don't want to stifle talented people. So Martin, who, ironically enough, worked at Sears with Salt and Pepper, who, you know, had the same producers and were friends that couldn't play. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was, uh, you know, again, it was a sort of a family atmosphere that was just there naturally. And Martin was brilliant uh, and so much fun to work with. And there was just no doubt that his rise to stardom was inevitable.
3: I have to ask you about Robin Harris because obviously, you know, with you producing and and writing Baby's Kids and everything, I'm curious when you first met him and what it was like working with him.
0: We saw Robin at the Comedy Act Theater and he was brilliant. I mean, he felt like this comedian from some other era that had been thawed out of the ice and brought to life. Um, And uh, when we first said we wanted to cast him, we were told, oh, you can't cast him because no one can understand him when he talks. And that, we're like, oh, then we're definitely going to cast him. I mean, if, if he's just so raw and so you know, black, fat, people don't understand him, that we understand him perfectly. Um So we put him in the movie and he was just genius. And, you know, we were absolutely wanted him to be in everything we did. And our next movie was going to be Baby's Kids as a live action movie. Uh But then when he passed away, I said, you know what? We can't let the memory of Robin Harris pass. So I turned the movie into an animated movie so that folks would still get to star in one last film.
3: I always wondered how you guys pulled that off as far as like when that came out. I was like, didn't he pass away a few years ago? Yeah.
0: I mean, and you know, I'm really grateful to Faison Love, who, you know, back then was just starting out. uh, And Faison could do a perfect, I mean, perfect imitation of Robin Harris.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. It was uncanny. It it sounded like you guys had recorded that before he had passed away. Right. I really appreciate how much weight you gave to the Sydney and Shireen characters as well. So it wasn't just a kid in play. It wasn't just Chris and Peter, but it was so much their story as well. It was really a nice balance.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's just how I was raised. Uh, that you know, women aren't just props, you know, they, you know, you have a better movie when they're fully fleshed out characters. And, you know, working with Tisha and AJ who were so talented and so funny, um, wanted to build them out and, you know, them as uh characters for Kim play to bounce off of to, to make it, you know, a real um you know real couples real relationships just made it a richer film and 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 better for the male characters and and well giving a variety of female characters to relate to so I would be the bachelor test i don't think existed back then but <laughs> that was certainly the goal was to create <laughs> make sure that you know uh, all the characters of all agendas were, were meaningful.
3: Yeah, this is your first feature film, and I'm curious, what were some of your biggest challenges on it?
0: Well, that was the scary part, because um we didn't know what we were doing, right? You never made a movie before. But it was going so well that the fear was, you're, are you missing something hugely important? Uh, because... It was a really uh, fun, seamless production. But time, you know, we're shooting in summertime, and a lot of the movie took place at night, but we would have less than eight hours of night to shoot stuff. So I remember the scene when my brother and I were doing a cameo, and we uh, were running down the street from these attack dogs, and would jump on the bus, and the sun was rising. So... We're like, oh, we can't shoot in that direction. It's gone. I said, turn the bus around, drive in the other direction. It's still dark. And we got the shot.
3: And I'm so glad that the, uh, the Hey Love commercial makes a cameo appearance.
0: You know, we just knew people would laugh. Uh, we were just shameless. Like, what did ed- it, what did it take to entertain people? So we put, uh, uh, Hey Love commercial in there. We put Dolomite in there. We just wanted to put all the flavors in there.
3: And it's it's such a a nice nod too because it feels like Robin Harris is like you said like unfrozen from that age. It feels like he's kind of carrying on that mantle. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. I mean, uh, like you know, Robin's piccolo player joke for me, I just going, oh my god, is this a joke in this era? I mean, like it it feels like something Red Fox would have said on the Chipman Circuit thirty years prior. Uh, But it was as funny now as you know uh, as anything.
3: When the movie's ready, were there any problems or any challenges as far as marketing this to a a mainstream audience? I mean, because this played everywhere. I remember playing you know out in the suburbs where I was working at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, There was definitely challenges uh, because the perception. I mean, I remember the Cisco and Ebert review where uh, Roger Ebert loved the movie, but Gene, uh, but Siskel hated it and thought it was about juvenile delinquents and, you know, who were, I mean, he just, it wasn't even about the movie. He just hated the culture that the movie came out of. He kept complaining about graffiti and it was just like, wow, you—that that is the corniest response ever. Um, so I remember that uh, and I remember there was a theater in Colorado who wouldn't turn the lights off entirely in the theater oh, because they thought riots would break out. Um, so, yeah, it was that time where uh, you just go, are you serious? So, yeah, I mean, we, we've come a long way yeah
3: if memory serves right around nineteen ninety when this came out, it was a real renaissance. I remember things like you know Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society this and a, a few other films all coming out almost right in a row, and it just really you know making quite a mark
0: yeah it was it was a big deal because I think at that time the biggest black film may have been menace to Society that made twenty six or twenty seven million And we came out, and for a two and a half million dollar budget, we made twenty seven in the U.S. Not to mention international and home video. So, and but bigger than that, it was it was taking a classic Hollywood genre, which is sort of the teen movie, and reinventing it using cutting edge black culture, and. That was sort of a revelation to Hollywood because they were like, Oh, well, wait a minute. We can understand this now. I mean, you know, it had a level of accessibility that meant a lot to Hollywood. And in those days, basically, the black movie was successful. Another black movie would get green with. I mean, for example, the success of the Wayne's brothers first movie at, uh, at NGM. I'm going to get you soccer. <laughs> You know that twelve million dollar box office meant a lot to uh, getting our movie greenlit because they said, "Well, we could at least make you know ten to twelve million because that's what I'm gonna get you sucker made." So, and our success helped with Jack City get greenlit. So it was just this, this kind of chain effect where either we all did well or we all did badly.
3: I. Remember going to see House Party two in the theater, and I didn't realize that it came out the next year. That was such a quick turnaround for that.
0: New Line I Emmy mean, came to us and said, "Okay, we want to do a sequel," and but the deal was they would pay us the same money we got paid on the last one. And we were like, "What?" <laughs> you know, and at the time we literally were getting offers from every studio in town. But you know, look, we wanted to make a sequel. We felt grateful for the opportunity that gave Davis. So we're like, let's do it. Uh, let's do a sequel. All You guys have to do is match the offers or anything else. Sir. we don't want to lose money, but we want to do it. They refused. So they said, oh, we know
2: we got it now. I'm like
0: we didn't have it last time. <laughs> so uh, what ended up happening was that every sequel has made enough money to generate another sequel. But none of them have made as much money as the original. I didn't
3: realize that there were five house party movies. I knew that there were three. I didn't realize like I kind of knew that there was a fourth one from seeing like the DVD for sale. You know, Mm -hmm. like all four movies. I had no idea there was a fifth one until just the other day.
0: They just pump them out. They just keep making money. Mm
3: -hmm. Between ninety and ninety-two, you must have been. So busy because Baby's Kids and Boomerang came out in the same year.
0: Yeah, I was making two movies at the same time, which was pretty pretty intense. So we were in New York shooting Boomerang, and we'd be sending notes back to the studio about Baby's Kids. And we had two movies out the same summer, which was pretty incredible. I can't
3: remember. How did Boomerang do?
0: Boomerang, it's funny. House Party is a movie that... I mean, they, they both are really beloved films, but for a lot of white audiences, they really aren't aware of how much more successful Boomerang was. Uh, Boomerang made $130 million all over the world, uh, which was a huge success.
3: That is amazing. God, you must have been on top of the world at that point.
0: Yeah, it was really, it was really great. and given the me experience of working with a Murphy who was just a hero and an idol. And, um, and that amazing cast was a joy. Uh, um, the studio didn't hundred percent get the movie and they were, you know, frustrated in a lot of ways, but the movie was very successful. And, um, we didn't, it was an interesting thing. Again, uh, there were critics Uh, who, it was a famous review that called it a science fiction movie because they just couldn't believe that a black middle class existed. So they just thought the whole thing was well, this is just some aspirational fantasy of how black life is because they apparently had never heard of Ebony Magazine or Johnson Publications or black insurance companies or, you know, all of the real life businesses that were the template for boomerang.
3: Oh my god, that is crazy! <laughs> did they did they think that scene in uh, House Party when they go to that uh, more upscale party that that was a fantasy as well?
0: You know, I never had a direct conversation with these critics, but it just really spoke to the chasm between how seemingly liberal people in the white community perceived actual black lives. I mean, because the thing about House Party and Boomerang, they're not protest movies. They're not movies whining about oppression and the white man. They're just black people living their lives. I think sublimely that freaked them out because they aren't the focus of the movie. This is us living our lives and we don't give a damn about you. We're just doing our own thing. And I think that created a kind of a cognitive Disconnecting in
3: their heads you've written a lot of of live action films but then we talked about babies kids how is it putting yourself in that role of writing an animated film because you get to do i imagine whatever you want to do because there's no concern as far as budgetary means for that
0: yeah i mean i love animation i really didn't know what i was doing with boomerang not just because of the medium, but because I hadn't had a family yet. So I really am excited to get back into animation, uh, kid, uh, family animation, because now I have kids, and I've watched movies with my kids. And you understand how to entertain families better once you have a family. Well, how
3: did you get involved with the Black Panther animated series?
0: Well, I wrote the Black Panther as a comic book for like three and a half, four years. And, and then I um, got an offer to be the president of entertainment at BET, basically run the world's biggest black media company. So uh, when I did my deal, I said, okay, I have to have a carve out where I can keep writing my comic book. And they said, fine. And uh then my head of animation said, you know, we should do an adaptation of your comic book, Reggie. And I said, "Oh, that's a good idea. But, you know, they came back for lunch and forgot about it. And three months later, they had actually done this animated short, um, which was amazing. So I showed it to my boss. She goes, absolutely. Let's agree like that. I took it to Marvel. Marvel said, we're so glad you didn't ask us permission because, we would have said, no, but that's great. we give the green light. So we made this animated miniseries based on my first story arc. Um, and it was crazy because I think this is the only time in history this has ever happened that the president of a network greenlights a TV series based on a book he wrote. Then you leave the network and then produce the series. <laughs> so... I don't think anyone's ever done all three jobs on the same thing. Um, so uh, we did the series. Um, but of course, now I'm the old regime. And you know the new regime comes in, and you don't want to support anything with the old regime. So they didn't really promote the series. So they were just airing at midnight. But it didn't matter. Fans loved it. And it became a trending topic on Twitter every night they ran it. So they ended up having to run it constantly because people loved it.
3: It felt like the movie picked up a lot from the series.
0: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, uh, that run was really influential. I mean, uh, to the Panahasi coach run, I had sold more black Panther comic books than anybody, including Stanley and Jack Kirby. Um, so, and, doing an animated series really broadened the audience for folks who don't read comic books, who had never heard of the character. Um, and there were a lot of ideas that have kind of really been embraced as key parts of the Panther mythology. Uh, the importance of Wakanda as a country that's never been conquered. The invention of Cherie never existed before, the little sister. I created her, um, who apparently is now Everyone's favorite Disney princess. And, you know, Claw kind of being reinvented as a guy with this kind of weaponized arm. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot of stuff from the movie, uh, in the movie that came from the Mike run of the comic book and the, uh, and the animated series, which was, you know, very nice.
3: Yeah, I was showing my wife after we went to see the Black Panther movie. I was like, "This is what the Claw looked like during the Secret Wars, and just that ridiculous costume that he was in."
0: <laughs> oh yeah, you couldn't like. That's the thing when when I did the book, I said, "Look, a lot of people." When I would, I was so sad to be working for Marvel. and I would tell my friends, "Hey, I'm writing the Black Panther," and they go, "That's great, Reggie. Who is that?" So. Uh, the first arc was called Who is the Black Panther? And the idea is, if you had never read a comic book before, you could read this these six issues and you would get the whole story about who he is. So uh, it just allowed me a chance to kind of create a template for what a movie might be. And at the time, the Marvel Cinematic Universe didn't really exist. It seemed unlikely the that there would ever be a Black Panther movie, but if there were... I knew this is what it should be.
3: Now, I'm trying to get the timeline right, because I think Chadwick Boseman had already played the Black Panther in Civil War, maybe, and maybe something else, before you worked with him in Marshall. Is that
0: right? When I first met Chadwick, he had just been cast as Black Panther. He had not shot Civil War yet. So we met at the LACMA, the L.A. uh, Art Museum Gala. A friend of ours, not knowing the connection, had us seated together. So we saw each other, we kind of stared at each other across the room, and he goes, I know you want to talk about it. So we just launched into this long, passionate Black Panther conversation about, you know, martial arts style and, you know, what, you know, capoeira versus jujitsu and da 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 da, and music and all these different elements. Um, And we just kind of clicked. I just, God, he's so smart, he's so tasteful. He's so cultured. So I knew I really wanted to work with him. So when I got the Marshall script, I go, wow, there's very few people who could play Thurgood Marshall. And this guy is top of the list. So let's just go for chocolate." Well, I want to ask you about
3: some of the stuff that you're working on these days. I want to know more about Blazing Samurai. <laughs>
0: yeah. Blazing Samurai is this animated uh, a movie that... Uh, um uh, one of the executives who Green Lit Boondocks was another animated series I worked on. Uh, he brought it to me and, you know, I, you know, we collaborated on a little bit, you know, and I know it's in the animation process. I'm not actively working on it, but I remember there was a rough cut and I brought my son to watch it and, uh, so he, you know, he gave his notes. So at 10 years old, he's already, um, put <laughs> Sits in to the movie process.
3: Were his notes good? Did you respect his notes?
0: His notes were good. He's a he, he's a, he's a tough customer when it comes to movies, but very good instincts.
3: Well, it has got to be tough when you're dealing with an animated film and getting notes? Because then, would you have to reanimate things?
0: Yeah, but you know, you do it early enough in the process that it's you know you're not looking at a finished film. You're looking at basically. Uh, what are called animatics, which are kind of moving storyboards. So, I mean, it's actually tougher on him to watch something that crude and to be able to kind of figure out what it's going to be uh, at the end of the day.
3: Well, can you tell me about Shadow Man at all?
0: Yeah, Shadow Man is awesome. Um, it's based on this comic book series by Valiant, uh, which is uh, a really great uh, comic book company. Uh, I love, love those characters uh, from the time they launched. Uh, so my friend Sean Daniels got the rights to sh- to produce Shadow Man, so I called him immediately and said, "That is my book. You got to give me that movie." And he says, "We're on it, Reggie." So I've been working with Adam Simon, who's an amazing writer, um, and was waiting on the next draft of the script. I mean, we we brainstormed so many fantastic ideas. So it's literally we're just editing it down. Like, okay. <laughs> We're going to put the whole kitchen sink in this movie, Um, and so we got to slice the pieces pretty thin. But, you know, I love superhero movies. I've seen them all. So the challenge is, how do you show something that you haven't seen uh, in these movies before? How do you break new ground? So that's what's exciting about it.
3: Were you a big comic book reader when you were growing up?
0: Absolutely. I still maintain sort of the family comic book collection, which is thousands and thousands of comics. I think it may be fifty thousand. I don't know the exact number, but it's 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 a storage problem.
3: <laughs> Were you more of a DC or a Marvel kid?
0: I really was totally broad. Marvel, DC, Gold Key, um Harvey, uh, you know, Archie. I just loved the medium. I just read everything that was in a comic book.
3: When was Black Panther a thing? What what age were you when that became a, a real thing? Was that late 60s? Black
0: Panther, yeah. Black Panther debuted in 1966. And what's crazy is, so you got two great Jewish geniuses, Stanley and Jack Kirby who come up with the idea of a superhero named Black Panther. Then you've got two geniuses in uh, in Oakland who come up with the idea of the Black Panther Party. So it happened at the same time in the same year with a whole country between them, but just brilliant ideas.
3: Mr. Hudlin, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure
0: talking with you. Oh, thank you, man. It's been fun. Absolutely.
2: Brothers, I can't hide! Can. Face. Ah. I want to thank all of you for making it possible for me to go to college. I-, I won't let you down. Your tuition check bounced. My tuition check bounced? Wake up, wake up, wake up. Get out of my room. Yo, without even hearing my plan. Side A house party. House party? The mother of house parties, man. A pajama jammy jam. All proceeds going to the Christopher Robinson Scholarship Fund. Give it up, Black. What's going on, man? Name Jamal. Do me a favor. What? Talk white. Love the rap. Everybody know about this part, but the three of you. I know, Grandma. What up with that? Oh, baby. Baby! I don't
6: know what you to do. I want to move. What up with that? You look good.
2: Kid and play. Full force. Tisha Campbell, Iman, Queen Latifah, and Martin Lawrence. It's the slamminest party ever. House Party 2. All right, we're back and we're
3: talking about House Party. House Party, which was very successful. And of course, since that happened, there has to be a sequel. And in this case, there has to be... Multiple sequels. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about how the it felt like Kid and Play were in college when it came to House Party 1, Jay, and with House Party 2... They, well, I can't say they are in college, but definitely Kid is in college, which is a little bit more fitting with, I think he was like 27 or so when uh, they were making these movies, 26, 27. So it fits a little bit better with his age. He's still not college age, but we're getting a little closer here with this. And And this one is another one where Play is, I mean, he is really a dick in this. <laughs> and just the way that we have him taking... Kids' money for college and spending it and basically losing it to a man who is playing a, a scam artist. I mean, there's he's he's really not very nice at all.
5: No, he's an awful friend. When you really think about it in retrospect, he's a terrible friend. He's one of those guys where it's that you would almost it almost makes you wonder how on earth do they like maintain? Do they maintain any kind of friendship along the way? The way that he was he would treat him and. It was like watching watching this movie. It was almost like it was it was almost like they were trying to figure out what to do when you had a really good first movie, and obviously the one and the, one of the main things is this the, is also the tribute to Robin Harris along the way too, and seeing them kind of redevelop over time. It was different. I mean, obviously it's obviously a year and a half later than when the movie comes out, and I do wonder how they were able to maintain that friendship because I. You take that much money from me. I'm not going to be the nicest guy to deal with.
3: <laughs> ten, what is it? $10,000? Yeah. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> I, I can't say that I like House Party 2 that much. And especially, you know, I was talking about the structure of the first House Party and how the House Party is the entire second act. And in this one, the House Party is basically the third act. So we're building up the entire time. And there's no even mention of a House Party and frankly not to be a nitpicker but technically they're not having a house party because this doesn't take place in a house (laughs) (laughs) but but to have the and i love when play says the pajama jammy jam having that at the end of this it's all building up to that and that's where all of these parties come together and we have everything happening the one line now talking about watching these movies almost 30 years later the line that really cracks me up is the whole idea of sydney and her new roommate who's played by queen latifah and when sydney has to ask her point blank you do like boys don't you
4: (laughs) another thing that's dated very well well the
5: the early 90s again were uh (laughs) we always thought the 90s were a lot more progressive than they actually were (laughs) wow but I heard her say that I couldn't help but cringe. It was gotta kind of be uncomfortable laughter.
3: <laughs> you know, as we're talking about the first movie, I'm thinking of other movies that were happening around the same time. You know, we were talking about the way that the cops are harassing kids and I'm just like, Yeah, this is very light compared to something like a Boys in the Hood or Menace to Society, where you really get to see that stuff. And with this one with them happening at college, I'm just like what year is school days coming out you know because that really speaks to cultural identity and those kind of things and that's kind of what queen latifa is bringing to it and the way that she's dressing in more traditional garb and all this and the way that sydney is trying to figure herself out and that's one thing i like about this movie is the idea of going to college and trying to figure out who you are and that's kind of a nice thing i don't know if it's 100% successful but it happens in this. And and again, these characters are charming enough that I want to see the continuing adventures of them, what they end up doing. I'm like, oh, OK, you know, I'm not that excited. And, you know, I cringe when Iman is on screen and I'm just like, she's a scam artist. Why can't you see that? But <laughs> now, Patrick, have you seen this one before or is this new for you?
4: This was new for me, and it was, and it's kind of that thing where this happens, unfortunately, with a lot of sequels. I, I I liked it okay, like you said, I liked the characters and the actors enough that I had an okay time with it. But it is kind of that thing where you know sometimes when there's a movie that comes out and it's, hey, that was surprisingly good. That could have been so much worse, and instead they made it something special. Um, and then the sequel comes along and it's like, oh, this is the movie that the first movie could have been, you know, had they not, had they not put more care into it. I was excited when Rusty Cundeef's name came up as a writer. I feel like the first House Party, if you are talking to somebody you just met and you, you know, the the movie House Party comes up, both of you are going to be like, oh man, House Party, yeah, that movie's really, really cool. I really like that movie. And House Party 2, I feel like it's only cultural relevancy is the phrase pajama jammy jam. That has carried on to this day, but other than
3: that, I will remember very little
4: about House Party 2.
3: Now, on the other hand, House Party 3, I love House Party 3, and I think the reason why I love it so much is Bernie Mac, because I could give a shit about Immature, the new band that they're introducing, and I don't know what it was with the 90s and having to have like little kid versions of bands. That's a weird fucking thing. I don't know if it still goes on today, but like back when like crisscross was happening. I mean, I remember Menudo, of course, you know, it's just like, yeah, we're going to take little kids and put them into bands. And won't that be cute? And so when you have these like really over sexualized, we want to drink and drug and do all this kind of stuff. More drinking, I suppose, is their thing. You yeah, know, we're going to take over the party and blah, 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 blah. Like the immature parts, I really don't give a shit about that at all, but the parts with Bernie Mac, fucking hilarious. As soon as he comes on screen, and I think he comes on way too late, but as soon as he comes on, he is electrifying. And all the parts with him are some of the things that I still quote from today. The... the typical scene of the more high class people having dinner with the lower class people and then Bernie Mac.
1: now I remember
2: I even remember your name did you call your jawbone
5: wow it was so interesting because yeah this cause this movie came out in 94 and this was around that obviously the crisscross is trying to make their comeback and now you're getting into groups like TLC and and, and that was a part of that weird little stretch another one was another bad creation was another Kid group of the early '90s that was—they were actually kind of a rival to Crisscross, which is really funny. But they—they they, now it is—it is different because I didn't. Admittedly, I wasn't as big a fan of this one because I think—and obviously they knew like this was kind of the end of the road for House Party because you, yeah. you could only do three. It was just like there's really only you could do is three of these. I Bernie Mac is is a Bernie Mac was a national treasure. It, it's it, it it still hurts, and plus Chris Tucker. Also showed up in this film, too, which I'd forgotten about, that this was before Friday that Chris Tucker showed up in one of these movies. And this this movie had its high points, Bernie Mac being the, the biggest high point of it all, where if you were going to have a guy kind of fill that Robin Harris spot, there's no better person to fill it than a guy like Bernie Mac, who Robin Harris was one of the guys he was inspired by. So it makes total sense to have him in there. It was, a, a, by and large, I mean, of the three, I like three better than two nothing was going to touch the first one but i like 3 better than 2 again it was like a, almost like a time capsule of what hip hop culture was when you got to the mid 1990s so by this point i was in high school so when you you're in the mid 1990s now and you're seeing where the game is and how how culture really is and where where that's going
3: there are weird moments in this movie very surrealistic moments like the three blind rappers that and, and I didn't even realize that they were blind until after the show and plays trying to give them like dollar bills instead of a hundred dollar bill and them getting out into their car and two guys are driving. The third guy has a long pole and is, is using that to help them drive again, not very PC whatsoever. Um, almost felt like that was coming out of uh, one of the Williams brothers movies, but okay but the XCON catering again it's a weird moment because the whole thing looks like prison they're behind bars when they're taking their orders and everything but those two guys and the chemistry they have and when the one guy just starts ripping on basically the belial stand-in in this one i think his name is stinky when he starts ripping on stinky
2: first of all you need to calm the fuck down and go gargle funky man my name is stinky stinky all right uh, stinky funky smell hella bad it's all the same Fuck all of that, nigga. Your name is funky because you come up in here smelling like butt crack now. Yo, squash all that, man. All I'm talking about the food better be on. You hear what I'm saying? Oh, look at this nigga. Mr. Baller, Mr. High Roller, Mr. Flashy fucking money. Well, since You got it like that, punk? Pay a nigga now. You got my food now? Or maybe, do you have my food now? So fuck <laughs> all the dumb
1: shit. Let me tell you
2: something. You don't come in this motherfucker making no goddamn demands. Nigga, fuck around throw your punk ass on the grill. Straight make some barbecue, bitch. No, fuck all that nigga. Bake all three of their punk ass and make three bitch pie now. Movies like this were always great for one-liners.
5: And things that you can remember that really stand out. And, and, there were, and it was like a part of a series of movies at that point in the 90s, where, where you ran to movies like CB4 and the House Party movies, and later down the line you had you had the first Friday movie. They all had, the, the weigh-ins movies always had these great one-liners in them that always stuck with you, where even if you couldn't remember everything about the film, you remembered the three-bitch pie, or go eat <laughs> your big-ass biscuit, or, or you got knocked the fuck out. It's like they all, there's always something that jumps out to you, and it takes you back there, because I mean, no one will ever say some of these movies were some of the greatest in terms of uh, in in terms of aesthetically or anything else like that. But just in terms of creativity and in terms of the what people can say and and how some of these things were written, they are fantastic in in that aspect because they they made that long lasting impression on you. And plus, they were just damn funny. And a lot of that is just it's just that they're funny. And I think that's why they stuck with stuck with me and so many others for so long, is they had those high points and those moments.
3: I was surprised because I the the woman that plays the aunt, who I mean we've we've had characters like this in so many movies where it's the dimensional aunt who doesn't really know what's going on. You can tell her one thing, and you know, just pull the wool over her eyes the whole time. You know, there's the moment in here where she's watching a porn tape, and then meanwhile back at the bachelor party, they're watching what she was supposed to. Be watching, um, th- that is Ketty Lester, and I never knew that she was an actress. I only knew of her from her music work, and I only knew of her from her song, Love Letters, which is where we get the great line in Blue Velvet of, you know, I'm going to send you a love letter straight from my <laughs> fucking heart. So, I've heard her sing so many times and I never put the two things together until I was watching it this last time. It's like, Katie Lester, why do I know that name? and I had to go look it up and but she was great. I love her in this movie and that she is that dimensional older character role, but it works in this movie, and I like when she and Bernie Mac are on screen at the same time and doing kind of a back and forth with that, and that Bernie Mac knows that she's crazy and just is has no problems telling her that, basically to her face.
5: That, that was a part of the greatness that he had, and seeing them kind of play off of each other, too, was really, really cool. And it was interesting to see her in, in a film like, especially that type of film, because obviously at the time, this was... This was 1994, and I had this. So she was 60. I think she was 60 years old when she did this. She's standing understand she's still alive, but she's 64 years old, and, and or 60 years old a movie like that. And yet she played a role in it that stuck out, that didn't feel like she was out of place in there. It was, it was almost like a nod again to music's past and kind of bridging it between past and present.
3: So did you guys get a chance to watch House Party 4 and 5?
5: I did not. I have not seen, I've only heard about those. I have not seen them.
3: I didn't even know that House Party 5 existed until I started doing research for this film. And, I mean, there is a huge gap of time between, well, so yeah, you said House Party 3, 1994. The first one's in 90, second one's in 91. In there, we've got Class Act, which I also really like. I I don't think it can really hold that much of a candle to the first House Party film, but I still enjoy it. House Party 4 was 2001. So a little bit more of a gap between those. And then House Party 5, which doesn't call itself House Party 5, it just calls itself House Party colon, Tonight's the Night, <laughs> 2013. So we are 23 years out from the original House Party. And apparently kid and play make appearances in these other two movies i never made it to their parts because i had to turn these things off because (laughs) oh my god we are in a post american pie world by the time that fourth one comes out and you can tell and both of these films have the production values of one of those like Quickie, God's Not Dead, Christian movies—they just feel it's like Lifetime feels like it has more production value than either one of these movies.
5: No, it, I, I honestly, I couldn't do it. I saw—I remember just seeing a, a, like a preview or something of what would be House Party Five, and I just said, "Hell no, not doing this. This <laughs> just cannot, cannot do it." It's that that's hard. That's how you know it tarnishes the the memory of the like Robin Harris's rolling over in his grave at the thought of a house party five
3: house party four felt like sub-tier ferris bueller's day off like it starts with one of the guys and i think he's one of the guys from immature and by that time i think they're calling themselves like imz
6: correction immature became imx not imz
3: because they are much older by this point and it starts with him pretending that he's sick and so that he can get out of going on whatever trip it is and then end up going over to his uncle's place maybe and watching the house and then that's where the house party takes place and talking about that whole idea of we have to clean up the house before the parents get back that we didn't have in house party one that's fully in force with house party four and it's just like oh you got to be kidding me and then house i made it through maybe 15 minutes of that movie and the amount of times that our main character turns and talks to the camera oh man and i watched the last few minutes of the film and it ends with them looking at the camera and talking to the audience it's just like no 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 and then the Fifth movie, I started watching that, and there was like a video conference call because there's a one of the two main characters in that movie is a white dude, which just was really offensive to me. I love how they make fun of the white dude in the second movie, you know Jamal. Um, but yeah, it's like there's they're on a video conference call, and the one kid's dad comes in and he starts bad bad mouthing the white dude, and the look of the video conferencing technology it just is like oh he's talking to a green screen and there's this kid placed over this computer screen it just looks so cheap that i was like no i can't do it i really cannot do this
4: yeah i see that it's a uh it's directed by darren scott and i i really like darren scott but his name as a director does not often signify uh a movie with much of a budget or of particularly high quality
3: I tried like crazy to see the 83 short that the first house party was based on. And I could not find that anywhere. And, you know, we were talking about outtakes and stuff before. I wish that there was some sort of a deluxe version of the first house party film that had the short that had the outtakes that had all that kind of stuff, because, I would love to see that because and I think and I'm not trying to be facetious and I think by now, you know, after talking about this for an hour, people will realize that I'm not being facetious. I think this movie deserves that. I think it needs to have more respect and more of a, you know, attention paid to it as far as being this really memorable time capsule from the 80s and have all those things in there because I would like to know more of the making of this film and again, you know, the the cultural importance of kid and play as these, you know, artists and I love that they have this backstory of them being Salt and Peppa's backup dancers, but then being popular enough in their own right and being talented enough in their own right to have the spotlight on them. That's fantastic.
5: It would be great to see it too, just to if for no other reason is that to, to find out that this that House Party started out as a as a student film at Harvard. And just to see the development of how it became a part of this. What really was like a cultural, kind of a cultural phenomenon. It was part of that wave in the late '80s and early '90s of of black cinema, and it started as a as a Harvard student film. I'd love to see how that thing kind of trans kind of transferred over, and how much of that and how it kind of evolved into what became the first House Party, and eventually to House Party Five. <laughs> but so, <laughs> the first one more so than anything else.
3: Kid and Play were so popular at one point that, and it was right around. The time that this movie came out, there was a kid and play animated series. Oh, I remember it. I remember that too. These guys, they were on top of the world for a while, and it's just amazing that they had that much clout. And I love it.
5: No, they were really, really big. It's, it, it's almost kind of forgotten that they they were right there in the early '90s with DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and with well, and nobody was bigger than MC Hammer for those two years. But those those guys were right in that conversation. They really were. I remember the the Kid and Play cartoon. It was kind of stunning, actually, how big they were. It was just that they kind of flamed out pretty quickly, like almost everything did in the early 90s. But they they had something going there for a little while. And House Party really helped enhance it, which, again, is really hilarious when you think of how raunchy House Party was that they were able to then turn them into a kid show and and get them over. But that's that was more on the personality and their and their draw.
4: Well
3: heck, they had a cartoon made out of Rambo, so. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I do think that's why I remember the movie being softer though because they were, you know, a cartoon series and I felt like they were like a more family-friendly hip hop duo and then I see the movie and it's like, oh, no, no this is this is definitely an R-rated movie.
3: <laughs> you were saying what? People came out of these films. I mean, obviously, you know Martin Lawrence. By the time the third movie came around, he wasn't available because he's already doing Martin, which ends up springboarding him onto bigger and better things as well. Bernie Mac. This was one of his first appearances, if memory serves, and then he, you know, was got very huge as well. Was showing up in everything. Um, Again, I don't think that he ever got the attention and respect that he necessarily deserved i always felt that he should have been the top banana instead of being like the second third fourth banana like when he would show up in things like charlie's angels was it charlie's angels 2 or the might have been in the first one he was the second one yeah okay shows up in charlie's angels 2 or he shows up in the transformers film you know these kind of things he just always brought such a bright point to it and to me, he was my he was my favorite ocean of all the Ocean's Elevens. So
4: I I remember going to see um, the original Kings of Comedy. I think the day it opened, and he was not totally on my radar at that time. He might have been the one I was least familiar with, and he goes last. And I just remember him just wiping the stage with everyone who came before incredible. him. Incredible. His set just kills. He is so great in that movie, and that made me a fan of his for life.
5: Around that time in the early 90s, this is when the, when uh, Russell Simmons' uh, Deaf Comedy Jam was still on HBO. And that's where the first time I had seen Bernie Mac, where all I needed to know was the first time I saw him, the first words he says was, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. And it was, <laughs> from that point on, he had me. And Bernie didn't really – the sad thing is he didn't really start getting his due – until the year he died, it was because he died in 2008. It was to about late 06 to when he died in 08. That's when he was really starting to truly shine. And then he got sick and he was gone almost in a flash. He was such an amazing comedian with unbelievable timing. It was the, king, the Kings of Comedy thing. I don't often go to see movies more than once in theater. But I remember that summer, Kings of Comedy came out. I must have gone to see it three or four times, and it was specifically for Bernie's set at the yeah. end, where he was just magnificent. And he 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 was he was almost like he could have been like a comedic version of Samuel L. Jackson, is where I could eventually see him being. Is like is like a Sam, a Samuel L. Jackson type of guy who can be he can be himself in every movie, yet be a distinctive character in every movie. And it works itself out perfectly, but unfortunately, we lost him. Lost him way too soon.
3: Yeah, that was one where I didn't even know he was sick, and it was just like, "Oh, Bernie Mac passed away." It's like, "What? You got to be fucking kidding yeah. me!" I mean, I just—it felt like I had just seen him in Ocean's Thirteen and Transformers, and yeah, there was a few years before he passed, but it just felt like he was always there. He was always a presence, and then his TV show was on for what at least like five years, so he was. He was around, he was there, and then all of a sudden he wasn't there, and it was just, I couldn't believe it, because he just always had that energy and the vivaciousness, and like he is uncontrolled when he comes to House Party 3. He is just such a manic energy that is brought into that movie, which I think that was sorely lacking. So when he finally shows up, it's just like, yeah, now we're talking.
5: Absolutely. His energy always entered the room before he did. And it and it was always it varied from movie to movie. When I remember him being a don't be a menace and he plays the police officer character and he's playing this angry, racist, yet he's black police officer, and he's telling Marlon and uh, Sean that I hate your black skin. I hate black pepper. <laughs> I hate my gums because they're black. And you just can't stop laughing at, at some of the things he says where you can almost see people in the background trying to keep it together. Because that's how that's how funny he was. And he could his facial expressions where he goes from that to when he was in the movie Friday and he's playing the lecherous creature. And there, there's so many of these things where it was, the I guess, the Sam Jackson comparison, maybe the best one, because Sam Jackson, so many of his characters are so distinctively Samuel L. Jackson. But yet they fit in each place that he is. And that's how Bernie fit in, in the oceans in the oceans movies it was the same way that, you know, this is Bernie Mac, but it works. And it works across time periods and everything else. And he was – that was one of – there were so many stars that came from those movies of the early 90s. But Bernie Mac was almost kind of a forgotten gem at times, which is really – again, it's sad that we lost him when when we did. Because I guess he would only be in – he would barely be into his 60s now if he were alive. Mm -hmm. But we lost him a little bit too soon. And I was in Chicago the day that, that he passed away. He's from Chicago. And I was in Chicago the day he passed away. And they I remember because they interrupted like TV programming out there that he was one of Chicago's native sons that they legitimately mourned out there when he died. It was it was tough because that guy was he was so good and so funny and so distinctive that to have a character like him, there's so many movies, even now movies and TV shows now that could use a guy like Bernie Mac, even at what he would be in terms of his age today.
3: Yeah, I'm very curious because I keep reading that LeBron James is going to try to reboot the the series. I hope that they won't do part six and that'll be kind of a, a new thing that he's doing. And who would be that type of character? You know, who is that Robin Harris? Who is that Bernie Mac today? Or are we just going to forego that and our own thing i'm just curious to see what he does with it i'm uh, you know after four and five there's no place to go but up. Uh... <laughs> all right if you guys are good we're going to take another break and play preview for next week's show
2: it was like uh, i caught a skating fever or something you know i didn't even come home that night i i sat there amazed by all the skaters and all the music and all the power and all the energy in the ring and uh The next morning I went and bought me some skates and I've been skating ever since. go into a fit. I'm going to be, if anything, the Muhammad Ali of of roller skaters. Some way, somehow, that I can just skate my way out of Belfast. I don't even eat no more. I don't even sleep no more. All I do is just go rolling. I love it. I really do.
3: That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of get rolling. So get your roller skates on. And until then, I want to thank this week's co hosts, Jay and Patrick. So, Patrick, what is the latest with you, sir?
4: I am podcasting every week and writing every day at FThisMovie.com. dot com.
3: Short and sweet. I love it. And Jay, what's been keeping you busy lately?
5: Well, I between I, I I teach journalism and and editing courses at Lincoln University out here near Philadelphia. But I've also been hosting my own podcast. It's called JSC Radio. Up to ninety ninety two episodes. Well, the ninety second episode will be coming. Excuse me. The ninety third episode will be coming very soon. Actually, going to be coming this week. My show is a little bit of everything. Started off as a sports show, but we hit just about everything you can think of, including movies and and a lot. Well, I'm Super Bowl coming up, so I'll be doing a lot of that this week as well. So I can be reached on Twitter at J. Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O-2-T's, S-M-I-T-H. Same for Instagram. And you can also follow my show, JSC Radio, on Twitter at JSC Radio, as well as on Patreon, patreon.com slash JSC Radio. Let's help this thing keep growing. I appreciate this.
3: Well, it has been a real pleasure talking with you guys. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-boot.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to our show as well as Jay's show. And I think even F. This Movie might have a Patreon as well. Not yet, but we probably should. Okay, maybe by the time this comes out, yeah, <laughs> Patrick's got to eat. Don't just get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Oh, boy.
1: Can you cook good? Can you read or is your brain like wood? Do you have sex or do you make love? How do you live? Do you give it? Do you take love? Girl,
2: Well, kid, I don't know what it is about this groove. Is here making us move, but it sure is. Funky. Think it's time to rap, shall we? Sure. Getting played play back, rolling strong. Dope and deaf. We can get funky with the best. We're just typing it up. You know just how it had to be. Just take a look around, boy. Can't you see. Guys are bumbling. Girls are just blushing. We're More than you can choose. No, i the dynamic duo do? Well, it'll go go fan. Come on, rock and swing. You got to roll, kid in play. Now everybody sing. This is high power stuff can play can't get enough of that bullshit. go 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 rhythm you wanted a dope jam well that's what we're giving we're headed for fame because play's driven. Boy, we-